gotta get another fucking theme song. This is... <laughs> like every time I do that, it just like starts to grate on me a little bit more. Just playing with a fucking Casio, like I'm a Value Village version of Bo Burnham or some shit. <laughs> I derive immense enjoyment from it. (laughs) Well, that makes one of us. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Hello. This is Colby. And this is Sophia drinking coffee. And we're Vertigo Voices. We are, aren't we? How are you doing? I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Just fine. All things considered. Yeah. I'm fucking hot and I'm tired. (laughs) I'm always tired because it's always hot. I mean, I guess, what, we're like halfway through June, a little more. Um, We are. I guess I should be happy that the cool-ish weather lasted as long as it did. But looking at the next week of like 90 degrees for the next, I don't know, seven days, like, fuck me. (laughs) The forecast is sweat. Yeah, exactly. moistness everywhere. Uh, All right, so we got some news right out of the gate. Um, Have you heard... The recent controversy about Batman and the Harley Quinn show? I have not. <laughs> so last week, uh, I can't, I, third season of Harley Quinn is premiering soon. I, I may have already, I fucking can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> there, there was an interview with the creators about it. They asked them uh, if there was any, anything they couldn't do on the show. And they said that realistically DC's been really good because they're focusing on villains and DC cares less about maintaining the integrity of their villains than their heroes, so they kind of let them do whatever they want, by and large. They said there was one joke in season three that they made them cut. They didn't go into many specifics, but it was basically Batman going down on Catwoman. And DC said, you can't do that! They said that, like, you can't can't have a marketable character doing that, even if it's a parody. And they said, the quote was, superheroes don't do that. What? (laughs) ridiculous yeah which then uh so then like that became a punchline it's been going all around fucking twitter and the internet val kilmer weighed in on it as (laughs) as a previous batman hold on i'll try to find it i should have had this ready to go val kilmer um (laughs) just has a, a scene of uh batman as a gif of batman and chase from batman forever she, said, she says, we could give it a try. I'll bring the wine. <laughs> and Val Kilmer says, does he or doesn't he? <laughs> but oddly enough, the absolute best response to all of this came from Zack Snyder, oh. who created what is probably his finest work within the DC universe. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's literally a picture of Batman going down on Catwoman on a rooftop, and Zack Snyder says... Canon. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, that's, that's just it. That's such a funny thing to say. Like, in the new issue of uh, uh, 52 of Catwoman, I think it's, like, within the first five pages, um, like, she comes in, she's being chased by someone, and she changes into her uniform, and then she goes and meets Batman, and the first thing they do is, like, have sex on a rooftop. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure why they thought that that was something that, superheroes don't do. Yeah, well, it's, it's just a weird... I mean, their thinking is Batman appeals to kids. We don't want kids thinking about Batman fucking going down on a girl, whatever. But the, it's it's such a weird... Like, like that's not a show for kids. Again, it's parody. Like, all of the versions of the characters in that show are 
exaggerated and goofy and weird and they're not the quote canon comic book versions of the characters right so just let them be stupid and weird and gross and whatever um the fact that that like dc had a problem with that but not anything else on that show is weird and it reminded me most more than anything it reminded me of uh gaiman's comments about sandman when dc told him he had to take out a line about masturbation in an early issue and their comment was, people don't masturbate in the DC universe. <laughs> oh. Well, no wonder they're all so angsty and you know, irritable. We've talked about this before, and I think you made that exact same joke, just so you know. <laughs> Probably, but it still holds true. Because uh, that, that was back when, like, before Vertigo was a thing, back when uh, it was in the Doll's House storyline, with uh, that dude that killed kids at... Uh, What's it called? Amusement parks. Like the Funland was the character's name. Anyway, uh, he had a comment about masturbation that DC made them cut out. Maybe maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was a different serial killer. I don't know. Whatever. There's fucking tons of serial killers in that. (laughs) But uh, in the audio drama, Gaiman reinstated the original line. I thought that was funny. There you go. Rightfully so. Societal, maybe not even societal, just uh, DC's... Beliefs on masturbation seem to have evolved, but not on cunnilingus. <laughs> so <laughs> I am disappointed, DC. I'm disappointed. Anyway, um, that was funny to see Batman's name trending this week <laughs> for reasons that were completely different from any other time. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting parallel they drew there. But yeah. and again, I mean, if nothing else that came from this, it's given us Zack Snyder's best work of art. <laughs> True, true. As much as I'll give him shit about his interpretations of superheroes, I can't argue with his take on Batman. <laughs> not in that regard. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, one little bit, bit of follow-up. Uh, last time, was it last time? Whatever. We were fucking talking about Todd McFarlane. You remember? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I brought up the legal issues between Todd McFarlane and uh, Neil Gaiman. And I found some more context for that regarding Miracle Man, the the issue with Miracle Man and Todd thinking he owned the rights and blah, 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 and leading to a big uh, legal dispute. So Gaiman actually wrote the comic book series 1602, which was a Marvel comic. It was like reinterpreting the Marvel characters in the distant past. Gaiman wrote that uh, and used the profits to basically fund his legal uh, issue. And he called it, oh, I think he called it Marvels and Miracles, was the name of the, the legal defense fund that he created for it. Okay. Um, but my favorite thing about that, so he did that, obviously in the end he, he won and retained the rights to these characters that he created. But uh, in the collected edition of 1602, it opens with uh, an inscription, you know, like the, a dedication. And the dedication is, For Todd. For making this necessary. <laughs> Inspiration comes in the most unlikely places sometimes. I just love that. I've never seen a, a dedication that's such a fuck you. <laughs> Again, he's such a classy guy. Yeah, it's a very classy fuck you, yeah. but it's most definitely a fuck you. <laughs> Indeed, yes, yes. I don't have 1602 in Collected. I only have the individual issues, so I never knew that. Yeah. Anyway, I was just just looking into that after we talked about it and stumbled upon that fun little bit of trivia. 
That could be future fun bits of trivia, finding the best uh, fuck yous in comics. (laughs) I imagine Neil is responsible for most of them. (laughs) Or maybe Alan Moore. I I bet that guy's really good at fuck yous. Yes, yes, most likely. (laughs) Speaking of both of those things, I'll cut ahead to my, uh, this week's Colby Has Issues, (laughs) dun-dun-dun. This week's is inspired by what I just discussed. Uh, just discussed, I picked up the hardback of the first volume of Miracle Man. Excellent. Which is the... When Marvel re- or when Marvel gained the rights to Miracle Man and Marvel Man... The original character was called Marvel Man. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird because he's basically fucking Captain Marvel. Shazam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says the magic word Kimota and it turns him into a superhero. Yeah. He's a little kid that does that. Even as the whole fucking Marvel family... Like Kid Miracle Man or Marvel, whatever. So it's it's weird that this ripoff of a ripoff got so popular, and then to just hide it, they just changed his name after he'd already been published for years to Miracle Man instead of Marvel Man. And at the same time, Captain Marvel Shazam was already going through like legal issues with Marvel that only were resolved in like 2008 or something. Like it went for fucking decades, which is why we can't call him Captain Marvel anymore. To be Shazam, even though he should be Captain Thunder! <laughs> Just putting it out there. But so anyway, uh, this was the, the Marvel's new hardback edition of that, which is harder to find than you'd think. This was only published like five years ago, oh. and it's actually pretty pretty hard to find. This uh, was the, not the first volume of Miracle Man, but the first volume of this 80s edition that uh, Alan Moore wrote. But Alan Moore, being who he is won't allow them to use his name in it. So it says, story by the original writer. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to get around it. I I think Moore had some legal issues with this too. I can't remember, maybe not. But uh, he doesn't want his name on reprints by Marvel or DC, I guess. Just because of all the bad blood? I probably, I don't know the whole story. I can't remember, but I mean, who can can keep up? (laughs) (laughs) Good point. But anyway, it's a cool addition. But one of the things that bugs me, so I think there were five volumes of this series. Marvel only republished the first three. No. And then they stopped. Because I was looking them up, and they were like, volume one is like 30 bucks. Volume two is like 35. Volume three is like 40. I I can't remember. But then like volume four and five are each like $80 each, because you can only get the original bindings. Huh. Actually, they're probably even more than that. I can't remember. But that just bummed me out, because I want to read that whole series. It starts... Starts by Alan Moore, and then it transitions to Neil Gaiman. And, I mean, come on. Moore and Gaiman. Who, who wouldn't want to read that? Hard to beat. I wonder why they just didn't go ahead and reissue the whole thing. I have no idea. And I don't know if they're planning on it. I don't know if there's a legal reason why. I didn't, didn't dig, but it annoyed me. Because it's, these have been out for a few years. In fact, I think they're even out of print now. May, I don't know. Let me look on Amazon. Miracle Man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, da, da, da. Hey, book one. Oh, that's fucking cheaper than I bought it for. You bastards! <laughs> Volume three. Yeah, see, it's like seven hundred dollars. Wait. What? No. That's. Oh, that's if you get a single issue. Oh, oh, oh. Oh yeah, hardcover is eighty dollars. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, so much more affordable. I checked the comic shop in town, too, and they don't have any of these. The Volume 2 is 35 Anyway, it just bugged me that you can't get the uh, originals. Not the originals, whatever. The fucking 
Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman ones for a decent price. I feel like I'm late in my observation that it seems like comic book publishers are very piecemeal sometimes. They used to be, so they used to be a lot more piecemeal when it came, came to graphic novels because it was rare for a book to, to get a graphic novel treatment. So it was like, I don't know, a couple of volumes here or there. Like Hellblazer, for years you could get Original Sins, the first volume, uh, and then Dangerous Habits, you know, like issues 40 you know, <laughs> through 45 or whatever. So it, w- it was a real pain in the ass to try to track down that series. It wasn't until just within the last five to ten years that they started churning out the entirety of that series in graphic novel form. Okay. Miracle Man. Not Man of Miracles. That's a completely different character created by Todd McFarlane. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. The genetic pool there seems to be pretty small when it comes to this character. Uh, Let's see. Book one, one through 11. Book two, issues... What? Four through six. Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) She's one through three. Oh, sorry. Issues one through three from Warrior issues one through 11. Christ almighty, the publication dates for this series is insane. Great King Syndrome, issues four through six. Miracle Man, volume three, issues 11 through 16. Volume four, 17 through 22. And then Apocrypha. I don't know what that means. Wait, Marvel began collecting the recolored prints of Miracle Man clips. Oh. So 17 through 22 have still not been collected by Marvel. Huh. Yeah, pisses me off. Pisses me right off. I guess Apocrypha was the volume five I was thinking of, but it's not technically a part of that series. And so they just don't think it'll be profitable, so they just kind of let it fall off? I have no idea. Who the fuck knows? So volume four was written by Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham. Wait a second. Is that what I was looking at a minute ago? I saw a Neil Gaiman, Mark Buckingham book. (laughs) This one, The Golden Age. Uh Aha. That's, I think that's it. But why isn't it called Volume 4? It says Volume (laughs) 1. Yeah, that is Volume (laughs) 4. You bastards. (laughs) Amazon, you absolute fucking pieces of shit. It's only 23 bucks. So I could get Volume 1 and Volume 4 for reasonable prices. Well, they buggered that one, didn't they? So Volume 2 isn't too bad. Volume 3 is apparently the expensive one. You absolute tossers. <laughs> I don't know, I'll, I'll just have to do some looking around. Try, I'm going to try Giant Nerd Books today. Oh, nice. Either I haven't been there yet. I need to go check out their new location. Yeah, that's cool. I have every good intention, just haven't made it. Anyway, I wow, that took us down rabbit hole there. Oh, understandably so. Yeah. Um, I also, uh, uh, big Vertigo news... No, it's not Vertigo, but big news. <laughs> Fables is coming back. I did hear that, yeah. yes. Bill Willingham, I don't know. Bill Willingham is making a new series, like a sequel series, but then they're also doing a, uh, oh God, what's it called? A spinoff slash team-up book of Bigby Wolf and Batman. Oh, fun. That sounds really fucking stupid to me. That <laughs> sounds fun. I mean, like, yeah, it probably will be, but it's just like, a black label has been doing this lately of weird crossovers with Vertigo properties. Like Sandman Lock and Key. Did you hear about that? I did not, no. You know the, the comic book series Lock and Key by uh, Stephen King's kid? Yes. <laughs> um, I, 
Joe Hill. Yeah, yeah. Joe Hill. <laughs> He's always going to be Stephen King's kid. I don't care. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. Um, they did a, uh, uh, a spin or a fucking team up, Sandman, Lock and Key, um, involving the key to hell. Apparently it's one of the keys in the Lock and Key universe. I don't know. Right. I read the first volume of Lock and Key. I thought it was fine, but I didn't have a big desire to read the rest. And then I started watching the TV series, and I didn't hate it, but I didn't finish it. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I remember seeing the trailers, but I haven't had much impetus to watch it either. Yeah. It was, it, again, it was fine. It was very, really, like, bright. I mean, not bright. It was just very, I don't know, it didn't have the same vibe as the comic. The comic was, like, dark horror. Like, Lovecraftian horror. In fact, the fucking show was set in a town called Lovecraft. <laughs> oh, there you go. I mean, the comic. The show, they changed the name of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's got, the town's got a different name. I don't know. But I remember I, in one of the episodes, there's a joke where, like, there's this club of, of teenagers that hang out and watch horror movies, and they call themselves the, the Savinis, mm. named after Tom Savini. Oh, yes, okay. And in that same episode that introduces them, Tom Savini has a cameo as... Uh, like a worker in a hardware store or something. Nah. I was like, that's funny, but it's also like really weird and on the nose that you name check him and then he's in the episode unrelated to the name check. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does seem a little like winking really hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But whatever, it was fine. I've just never gone back to it because I don't really care. <laughs> but speaking of Netflix... Vertigo, wait, Lucky wasn't Vertigo. Speaking of Netflix comic book adaptations that I do care about, today we're going to talk about Sweet Tooth. Yay! How about that segue? <laughs> that was gorgeous. It was. If I didn't trip over it. <laughs> very smooth, very smooth. <laughs> because usually I think about the segue after the fact, so the fact that I queued it up in my head is kind of a big deal to me. <laughs> <laughs> it works, it works. Does the job nicely. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, today we're going to be talking about Sweet Tooth, uh, both the Netflix series and the original Vertigo comic that it is based on. And I don't usually say spoilers because I feel like that's kind of implicit, but today I'm, I'm going to go deep with the spoilers, so I feel like I'm going to have to say spoilers for anyone listening. I will be spoiling the show as well as the comic book series on which it is based. There you go. So if you care about those things, now's the chance to put this on pause and go watch and read and come back. But I mean, let's face it, if you've read the comic, or if you haven't read the comic at this point, you're probably not gonna. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I was late to the game with Sweet Tooth, and I really enjoyed it. Well, I, and I guess now that the show, I mean, there is possibly a new, a new audience because of the show. So I guess I shouldn't be that dismissive, but I still am. <laughs> because I'm a snob. It's in your name. I'm a, it's okay. I'm a hipster. <laughs> and when, when you're talking about Asian actors, I was like, not to be all hipstery, although I am. <laughs> <laughs> you are, that's okay. It reminded me that I need to watch Ichi the Killer. Yeah. So. <laughs> I fucking love Tadanobu Asano. I just watched him. Oh, uh, Silence. Do you know Silence? Uh, Martin Scorsese. Yes, he's in that? Yeah, he plays the interpreter. Oh, excellent. He's also in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's Hogan the Grimm. Hogan the Grimm. In the three Thor movies. Oh, okay, then I have seen him in stuff yeah. before. I just didn't know it was him. My favorite line of his in Thor Ragnarok 
when Hela shows up and she gives her whole speech about who she is. And he goes, I don't know who you are. And she goes, were you not listening to me? <laughs> like, I just explained who I am. <laughs> that was a good part. Well, some good parts in that movie. Well, uh, yeah. For, like, the four people who know what we're talking about. But <laughs> your Facebook post about Asian actors. All right, moving on. <laughs> Sweet Tooth. Yeah, so we watch Sweet Tooth. It's out on Netflix. Um, who's the showrunner? Jim Jim Mickle? Jim 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 Mickle and and Beth Jim Mickle is the executive producer, along with Beth Schwartz, Linda Moran, Amanda Burl, and the Downies. <laughs> the Downey family. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Mickle is like the showrunner, though. Or so the producer. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. So Sweet Tooth. The comic book was created by Jeff Lemire. We've already talked about. Listen to the Nobody episode. Another good book. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the show, uh, you know, loosely follows the plot of the comic while diverging pretty significantly in tone and, um, I don't know, in plot as well. What is the book report for the story of Sweet Tooth? All right, then. Uh, basically, it's a story that takes place in a post-apocalyptic world, mostly in uh, woodlands and forest area, where uh, some creatures are human-animal hybrids. One in particular, a young boy named Gus, meets up with this very salty, rough character named Jeppard. Um, and in the comic, it's all about Jeppard uh, saying that he will guide Gus to this place called the Preserve, where it's safe for hybrids. And, uh, well, because, you know, they're hybrids. So, of course, you know, people are afraid of them and they have to be experimented on. And that kind of, it kind of follows the same vein uh, in the show as well. Um, Gus is, you know, he's just a boy. He's like nine or ten years old. Both of his parents are dead. And he has to find his way in a very hostile world. And he was raised by his dad in a, what, a shack in the woods with with no one else around. So he's like raised in seclusion and in that that's probably to me one of the biggest differences that i liked about the show better than the comic is just his dad right and the show his dad's played by will forte who is not nearly as goofy in this as he is in everything else he's in (laughs) Um, but i fucking love will forte and to see him kind of be a more restrained but also comedic character was fun and he's just he's very warm he's really warm father who clearly cares about this kid and uh doing his best to give him, like, a like a happy life. Right. You know, like, the first scene of him is, uh, is it the first scene? I can't remember. The scene of him painting the, the, the book for his son. Right. He's, like, yeah. he's like remaking all these children's books so that his kid can have a little library of stories. And uh, that warmth is in stark contrast to his father in the comic, who's just a religious nut job who uh, is constantly... Uh, He's like he like uses religion and like stories of the end time to keep Gus from leaving. Yeah, he um, seems more like a, a prepper, a zealot yeah, prepper kind of. than <laughs> And they don't really go into how he gets that way in the comic. Because his backstory is almost ex- identical. He was a uh, in like again, this is fucking spoilers, but in the comic and the show, he was a janitor at the the, sci- the scientific research lab that created Gus. Um, and then he ends up spiriting the child away and uh, living with him in seclusion. The The way they get to that point is a little different in both, but 
stories about, about the same. But in the comic, you never really see how he goes from regular janitor to religious extremist writing his own Bible. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a big jump. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess the end of the world will do that to you. So I guess you don't need that much explanation. But it was just kind of a weird jump to me that makes more sense in the show because he's a more loving, realistic character, I guess. Exactly. And it has more emotional weight in the show, too, when you find out that um, the Gus really isn't his kid. Yeah. And that um, the relationship that he had with the woman who helped create Gus is, was, like, incredibly yeah. fleeting and short. Yeah, exactly. And, like, he just had this thing, this child thrust upon him, and he made the decision that, okay, I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to love it, and I'm going to yeah. keep it safe. Um, which yeah, has more emotional resonance, you could say. Yeah. In the comic... Uh, the dad's backstory is told completely through uh, images, like there's no dialogue. And it shows him working at the lab, coming home to his pregnant wife, working at the lab, coming home to his pregnant wife. Uh, then around, right before the plague hits, his wife has a miscarriage. And uh, then he goes to the lab one day, finds a bunch of the scientists dead of the plague, and he finds baby Gus picks him up and takes him back home and finds that his wife is de- dead of the plague. So then he just throws Gus in his truck and they leave. And he goes out to the, to the woods to raise him. And that's, like, like that's literally the entirety of him finding Gus and deciding to be his father. There you go. But in the show, it's much more, much more emotional and, and there's more of a connection between the mother, the father, and the baby. And uh, hopefully we'll explore that more in season two. Yeah, I'm sure the... <laughs> Second season, we'll uh, dig into that a bit more. Which actually reminds me, so like the show has been really popular, like surprisingly popular on, on Netflix and on social media, uh, which led me to notice something last week that on Netflix's top 10, two of the top 10 shows, uh, meaning what? what is that, one-fifth of their top 10 list, yeah. were Vertigo adaptations. Lucifer, oh. the new season dropped. My favorite, yay! Yeah. yeah. So both Lucifer and Sweet Tooth <laughs> were in the top ten at the same time. Well, that, that's pretty, that's cool. That's pretty interesting to me. That and then you know, within in September we're getting Why the Last Man. Early sometime next year we're getting Sandman. So like it, it's weird that there's f- conceivably four Vertigo shows that are in the social consciousness right now. That is, uh, that is pretty neat, and as much as I'm a snob about Lucifer, in the long run, if that brings people to the comic, they watch the show, and they decide, hey, that's a comic, I want to read that, then I can't fault that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, going back to Sweet Tooth, so then yes. Gus, uh, <laughs> Gus meets Jeopard, who, again, very different between the comic and the movie, or comic and the show, which is actually one of the things I like about this adaptation. I, I don't like when adaptations change characters or swap characters out or bring in new characters, whatever. Like, that bugs the shit out of me for some reason. As long as the characters are maintained, I feel like the story can go in whatever direction they want it to. <laughs> but I just, I, I really like that this show just re-staged and or re-configured the characters. Right. Like, they brought in the same characters and then kind of went on their own way. Like, uh, Jeopard in this doesn't have any connection to to Abbots and the villains and anything. He's literally just on a on a journey across country and this kid happens to tag along. He's not hunting him and he's not betraying him or whatever. The Jeopard uh, on the surface is a lot more noble character in the 
show as opposed to the comic. In the comic, he does end up, you know, redeeming himself and becoming a, kind of a father figure to Gus, but it takes a long time to get there, and he's a much more damaged character in the comic than in the show. Boy, howdy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and who's the actor that plays him in the show? Uh, Nanzo Ananzi. Anozi. Anozi. I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. He was on Game of Thrones. <laughs> he was. He was the, the most, uh, like, the wealthiest dude in Karth. He was, wasn't yeah. he? And he was like, oh, look at all the money I have. I've got so much money, you can't see it, but I've got a lot. <laughs> was he the one that got locked in the safe? Yeah, okay. because they finally opened the safe and it's empty. That's right, that's right. Okay. <laughs> so much money! <laughs> so rich! No. I really like the chemistry between him and the young boy that plays Gus. Yeah. Christian Convery. Con- Convery, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the... So Jeppard is retooled slightly in his backstory and that his the story about his wife and his son is mostly the same. It's restaged a bit, but it's largely the same. But then uh, instead of being a professional hockey player, he's a professional football player. Right. And of course it's Jeff Lemire, so of course he'd be a hockey player because <laughs> that crazy Canadian loves his fucking <laughs> hockey. <laughs> you gotta stay true. Yeah. <laughs> true to your roots. Yeah. It's also the the setting has been restaged. Uh, in the comic, it's Nebraska, right? And in the show, it's Yellowstone, and kind of I don't know. It kind of goes a little further than that. They're not too beholden to geography, really. In either in the comic book, they go from Nebraska to Alaska in seemingly a few days. <laughs> That's quite the force march. Uh, and on one tank of gas in a Humvee. <laughs> So, oh, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the the I think the uh, geography makes maybe a little more sense in the show. There's also that train that they get on. You know, that's not in the comic at all. So no. um, there's a little bit more logic to their travels in the show. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, I like the nod to Essex County. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. <laughs> that the zoo. There's a zoo in the series that is a pretty prominent uh, setting. It's not in the comic, but uh, did I say, I don't know, whatever. The zoo in the show is uh, the Essex County Zoo, which is a reference to an earlier Jeff Lemire comic series called Essex County. So I think we talked about that a little bit in the uh, Nobody episode. We did. Yeah. I haven't read that it's one a good yet. Book. I haven't. It's good. <laughs> it's so it's like, it's like a whole, it's like a collection of short comic stories, but Essex County, it's just called that in its collected uh, version. Okay. But yeah, it's a good read. On and it, it's fun to see that. Like, the Essex County sign shows up when they cross the county line, and it's fun little nods to Lemire. I was waiting for Griffin from the Nobody to show up, but he did not. <laughs> Alas, not that kind of crossover. Yeah. But that, uh, speaking of the zoo, so the zoo is run by, uh, what's her name? Doc, doctor, or is he even a doctor? Amy. A, yeah, Amy. Amy, and... Uh, Danya Ramirez plays her, who will always be Callisto in X-Men 3 to me. I fucking hated her in that movie. <laughs> That's right. I totally forgot about that. that but she so does cool. a lot better in this. She's she a very competent actor. And that is a subplot that's pretty much entirely new for the series. Mm-hmm. The fact that the, uh, what do you, the preserve is real. And yeah. she actually has a preserve full of hybrid kids, and she's protecting them. That's basically a myth in the comic. They, they, Jeppard tells Gus that, and I'm taking him to the preserve, and it's a lie. He's actually taking him to Abbott so he can be experimented on. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so Amy is an entirely new character, 
but she shares a lot of similarities with a character in the comic named Lucy, mm-hmm. who in the first volume you only see her briefly, and then she comes back. Uh, Jeopard teams up with her and Becky to get the animal army to attack uh, Abbott, and I don't know, becomes a whole fucking thing. But <laughs> the character of Lucy is kind of split into two characters in this. She, uh, the kind of heroic side of her is given to Amy. And then, um, what's her name? Dr. Singh's wife? Raji, R- Ronnie. R- Ronnie. Ronnie, yeah. Ronnie Singh then shares some elements with Lucy as well. Because in the comic, Lucy gets the plague. Mm. And she kind of wastes away over the course of a few issues. Kind of like Ronnie in the, in the series. Yeah. yeah. Which is one thing I really fucking didn't like about the show. Whenever somebody gets the plague, their pinky starts twitching. <laughs> and whenever they do that, it's really obviously CGI. Because, like, a real person can't twitch their pinky that quick. Right. And there's one shot of it. I think it's when they're at the dinner party when Dr. Singh's neighbor catches it. And there's, like, a close-up of his pinky, and it looks like a cartoon. Like, oh, it doesn't fit in with the background. Like, Jesus, that looks bad. I just wish there was a better way to show the plague afflicting them. But I get it. Like, that's something, like, different than every other plague movie. Where somebody right. would start coughing up blood and hide the handkerchief. <laughs> exactly. Oops. And this, it's like, oh, my pinky's switching. I better put my hand in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. Clasp your hands in your lap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, I guess if I had any criticisms about the show, it would be there are some moments where, it, like you said, it's just obvious CGI. Like, yeah. yeah. But for the most part, um, it gets the story across really well. It's really engrossing to watch. And uh, it keeps the spirit of the comics pretty yeah. well intact. Yeah, and just the fact that so many characters are so, and small characters are so well adapted. Like uh, on the train, when Jeopard and uh, Becky and Gus get onto the, the train, they meet that dude, uh, Fat Man. Right. And Jimmy Jacobs. Yes. That's a character from the comic that comes in way later. Uh, and they have, he has a similar backstory with, with Jeopard in the show, but in the comic, it's done way differently. So Jeopard steals a Humvee, takes, I can't remember. He's driving to try to find Gus, and he crashes the Humvee. Maybe he's not trying to find, it doesn't matter. He crashes the Humvee, and Jimmy finds him, knocked out, drags him back to his cabin, and ties him up. And then Jimmy's, like, interrogating him, and he's like, he's like, yeah, dragged you out of the crash, you had a pretty bad cut on your head, and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, now there's one thing I want to know. Like, how do I know you? It's like, I, I recognize your face. I haven't seen people in years, but I know that I know you. It's like, were you a guard at the camp that I was staying at? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, man. Like, I don't know you. Just let me go. Got to get to my friends. It's like, I fucking know you. Were you at the fucking military group that killed my wife or whatever? Like, no, I wasn't. You got to let me go. And he just interrogates him for hours. And keeps bringing up stuff, and Jeopard's like, no, I'm not this guy. No, I'm not that guy. And then Jeopard's like, like, listen to me, fat man. You either let me go now, or I'm going to fucking kill you, whatever. And then Jimmy just kind of stares at him. He's like, fat man? He's like, did you, did you play hockey for the whatever, like Montreal, Maple Leaf, whatever? And he's like, yeah? And he's like, dude, I, I was, I'm Jimmy Jacobs. Like, we got in a fight and on the ice. Like, you knocked me out good, man. He's like, uh, oh, hi. <laughs> And he's like, you called me Fat Man when you hit me. Like, I just, wow, wow all right, sorry, I'll untie you, man. Like, well, you need some help? Like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's like similar to, the, to their interaction in the show where Jimmy meets them on the train and he's like, oh, I'm security here. Oh, shit, you're Jeopard. Holy cow. Right, <laughs> right. 
poor guy. He's like, I, I have problems with my memory. Yeah. And, and uh, Bear, she's like, I think those are concussions. Yeah. <laughs> poor guy. In the comics, Jimmy also has a son who's a hybrid. It's a bird. It's oh. A hybrid bird flies around. Um, and yeah. So yeah, someone like Jimmy, that was cool to see him adapted. Um, obviously, a lot of the... A lot of the uh, hybrids, like Wendy. Wendy's got a very different story between the show and the, and the book. But pretty like similar-ish character. One character that's been changed pretty significantly, and I'm wondering how they're going to work this out, is Johnny. Mm-hmm. Johnny's the dude, he's got mullet and glasses, and he works for Abbott. Um, and he's like very antagonistic in the show. He's like always kind of standing over Singh. So, like, halfway through the series, Singh and his wife, who's the doctor, are just living in this community, kind of cut off from the rest of the world, almost like a little utopian society. It reminds me, have you ever seen A Boy and His Dog, read the book or anything? I have not. There's this, like, underground society in that that this reminds me of. Um, they're trying trying desperately to maintain normality in the midst of an apocalypse. And uh, then when, wife's, or when Singh's wife is discovered to have the plague... Their house is burned, but Abbott rescues them because he needs Singh's medical knowledge for the hybrids. And um, Then Johnny is just kind of there, like, watching over them, making sure that they're staying in line. And in the comic, Johnny is kind of the jailer for the hybrids mm-hmm. that Abbott, who's the main bad guy, is looking over. And uh, But Johnny is, like, instantly... When he's, when he's introduced, he's instantly more... Uh, Antagonistic? No, the opposite. <laughs> he's, he's sympathetic. Not, yeah, he's more sympathetic. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and he he likes the hybrids. Like, there's a flashback that shows that he let Jeopard go initially when Jeopard was captured by them, which is why Je- Jeopard has a debt to the the Abbott and the uh, whatever the bad guys. So uh, he lets them go, and then he lets the hybrids go later, and he kind of joins Jeopard and Gus on their journey. And it's also revealed that he's Abbott's brother. Which in the show, in the show, the monetary, I mean, monetary, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> the relationship, like the fam- familial link is between uh, Becky and Wendy. Mm, yeah. And that's not in the comic. They're completely unrelated. And so I'm wondering if they just switched that instead of, uh, instead of Abbott, the main villain, and um, Johnny being related. I wonder if they switched it to them. Possible. I don't know. There was one. There was uh, um, one line that made me wonder uh, if Abbott was giving preference to Johnny in the show, um, where instead of like commanding him, it almost sounds like he's irritated. Like, like, would you just do this thing? Oh, yeah. Like, you would talk to like a sibling or could someone be. you love. So I don't, that might be a reveal next season. It's just they have they have different accents. <laughs> so <laughs> they kind of do. Yeah. Who plays Abbott in the show? Uh, his name is, let me see if we can find it. He looks really familiar. He, he was on a season of The Flash. You would know that much better than I. Yeah, his name is Neil Sandilins. Sandilins, okay. Uh, he played uh, the thinker, Clifford DeVoe, on a season of The Flash. Man, he's got quite the film editor, producer, screenwriter, director, cinematographer, and actor. Yeah, he's, uh, he's South African. Okay, I was wondering where his accent was from. Where again? Whereas Johnny doesn't. I mean, he's just I mean, he's just American. He he's is. just a white dude. <laughs> <laughs> just white dude. <laughs> Bless him. Um, Johnny's not even listed on here. That's weird. Hmm. Yeah. So 
Abbott, Johnny, you know, the bad guys, whatever. The, and, and the whole thing, I already mentioned, the whole thing about the preserve being fake. Because in the comic, all the hybrid kids are just being held captive by Abbott. Yeah. And in, in the series, it's almost like that status quo is, like, is gotten to. <laughs> you know, like, by the end of the first season, all the hybrid kids are together, um, uh, being controlled by Abbott. But, uh, it, like, I, I think it's interesting to actually have the, uh, the, the preserve being real. And, like, this person trying, trying to save these kids and then have them all taken away. Uh, yeah, I think it adds another dimension to it. And then you get to see uh, the, I already mentioned Wendy. There's also uh, Bobby, the little woodchuck. <laughs> Talking woodchuck. Yeah, which he's, he's a lot, he looks different in the comic. So in the comic, just everything looks more depressing. Yes. <laughs> the characters just are always sad. They have long faces and they look, they look like they're about ready to cry and then fall over dead. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and... It's the same with Bobby. He's got giant buck teeth, and he just looks like this scrawny little marmot. <laughs> and in the show, he's like a pudgy little anthropomorphic beaver, whatever. Actually, in the comic, they, specific, they specifically point out that he's not a beaver. Because at one point, Johnny says something about him. Like, I thought he was a beaver. And Dr. Singh is like, no, he's actually a woodchuck. Like, that's why he's trying to hibernate right now. It's like while they're talking, Johnny or, uh, Bobby digs a hole and sleeps in it. Mm-hmm. And they, like it's brought up that like oh yeah he, we actually probably aren't gonna be able to travel with him much longer because he uh, he needs to hibernate soon. Ah okay. And yeah, so when they introduce Bobby on the show, you know it's this like chubby little beaver boy wearing cute clothes and everything like with the <laughs> giant doe eyes. When they introduced him, I was like, I've got to look up to see if he dies in the comic because I'm not <laughs> going to deal with this fucking thing dying on this show. <laughs> I want to be prepared. Yeah. So I looked it up, and no, Bobby survived the whole series. Okay. okay. <laughs> and then after I read it, like, yeah, okay. He shows him as an old man with Gus in the end. So, yeah, Bobby should be safe. You never know. Yes. <laughs> Let us hope. Let us hope. But yeah. based on how, on how uh, I don't know, just more bright and positive the show is, I can't imagine Bobby's going to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hope not. Um, they've done a really good job of taking something that's so dark and adult and kind of making it like this is a show that you could watch with your kids. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It feels like a YA novel has been adapted or something. In the original comic, I think it was Lemire, described it as being a mix between Bambi and Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Yes, yes. I'm glad you brought that up. I can't remember what critics said it, but they said basically it's like a combination of Mad Max meets Bambi. And I was like, no, it's in my mind it's more Cormac McCarthy than it is George Miller. Yeah, exactly. Because the the comic is just unremittingly depressing and dark. (laughs) The sky is always gray. The land is always devoid of any life. (laughs) Mud and tree branches and... Everyone looks sad and annoyed and angry. (laughs) (laughs) Like Gus is the oldest nine-year-old you've ever seen. (laughs) And one of the things I really like about the show is we've seen that. We've seen that a million fucking times. We've seen so many depressing, gray, post-apocalyptic stories. So to see a show that's bright and hopeful while at the end of the world is way more interesting. Even the whole thing about the flowers, like the blue flowers that bloom when somebody gets the plague, that was created for the show. And just gives this bright visual metaphor for death. And that's 
here, here. Really yeah. interesting. It is. I think uh, I was reading an interview with Jeff Lemire where he said that very same thing. He was like, you know, um, uh, when Sweet Tooth was first published, there wasn't too much of this oversaturation of a post-apocalyptic world in the, you know, the popular publishing market. Um, whereas so many years later, like we've seen that so many times now that, uh, you know, it's safe to say that some people are burnt out on it. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that they did take it in a little bit of that different direction. I will lightly disagree with him, though, <laughs> because there was plenty of great, oppressing post-apocalyptic shit back then. Well, this, com- this comic's only 10 years old. It's not like it came out <laughs> in the 70s. Well, no, no, but, I mean, in turn... There's more now, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, but there was plenty back then. So I, I like that they went a completely different direction with it because I've you know seen it before, and I'd seen it before then. The comic is good, don't get me wrong. It's it's good and it's interesting and it's fun to see the characters grow over time. But it's also, it can become a bit of a slog when you're just watching characters suffer for 40 issues. Right, right. Like you said, they always look like they're in pain. Yeah. <laughs> and even, like, there's even parts in it that, are, like, have some levity, but you're still watching terrible things happen to people. Like, there's a whole scene with uh, Abbott has these... Three, three or four, I don't know, they're uh, dog-human hybrids. And they're like these teenage, uh, well, I guess they're nine. I guess they have to be only nine years old because of the timeline, but whatever. They're these hybrid dogs that he uses as, like, trackers. And there's this one scene, and one of the issues just starts with Bobby sprinting through the forest while these dogs are on his tail. And Bobby can barely function. Like, you know, he, he doesn't have the brain capacity of... of uh, Gus, he's like more more feral than human. Right. So he's like thinking to himself, like, Bobby M fast. Bobby M get away from dogs. Dogs faster, but dogs can't climb. And so Bobby is like shows from his point of view, he climbs up this tree and he's looking down at the dogs. He's like, ah, I'm really high up. They can't get me up here. And uh, then Abbott and one of his little cronies walk up to the tree and they're like, What happened? He's like, I he climbed up the tree. And Abbott goes, Well then fucking get him down. And so this guy just reaches up and grabs Bob because he's only like three feet off the ground. Oh. <laughs> he just grabs him. He's like, get the fuck down here. And throws him on the ground. Oh, Bobby. <laughs> but in Bobby's mind, he's like, oh, I'm, I, I escaped. I got away from him. He's so, so high up. <laughs> so like, you know, even things like that, it's like, oh, that's, that's, like, that's kind of funny and goofy, but poor fucking Bobby. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. Um, but again, I'm, he survives. He yes. makes it through. <laughs> that's the important part. Um... I have to admit that I probably liked Jeff Lemire's art better in The Nobody than I do in Sweet Tooth. Yeah. It's not bad. And for anyone listening out there, it's like, well, let's see you do it. I, I can't fucking draw. But as from a reader's standpoint, um, I thought his art served the character better in The Nobody than it necessarily does here. However, I, I do have to admit I was reading it on my phone. So oh, I had to weird. zoom in on bubbles and whatnot because I was reading it off of a library app. Um, however, like you, when you mentioned the tracking dogs, there's that fantastic page where Gus is having that, that dream where, uh, Dandy the deer, who's a stand-in mm-hmm, for Dandy, yeah. and that rabbit are trying to warn him off of Jeopard, like, you need to get away from this guy, he's bad news, um, you need, like, and all of a sudden you hear this sound of dogs barking, and they're like, run, run, run now, and he's like, I don't understand what's going on, and then he turns around, and there's that fantastic page where it is, like, 
Abbott in English equestrian gear and oh, yeah. like five of those tracking dogs like all converging on him and it's really freaky and it's yeah. really really well drawn. So there's like moments like that throughout the book where at first I was like, ah, I don't know if I'm really digging the lines here, but then like he shows you a panel or a page where, you know, I was just like, Well, I apologize, sir. <laughs> I like his art in that a lot. That might be my favorite art of really? Myers. Yeah. I liked it better than nobody. I didn't like the no well, I didn't shouldn't say I didn't like, but uh, I found nobody's coloring just to be less interesting. I mean, it was just black and white with blue. Um, and it, like, I think we said this when we first recorded it, that there was like an unfinished feel to it. You did Just say that. because so many artists use blue on their original sketches. So, and I don't think that's a flaw. Like, I think that's by design, and I like that about it. But I just, I like the color in Sweet Tooth better. True. Black and white versus color, I'm almost always going to pick color. So. <laughs> no, that's fair. And even, you, even when it's largely gray and uh, <laughs> depressing. There, well, there are some excellent examples of color in there, too. I think, if I'm thinking of the, of the panel correctly, it's the one where after Jeopard gets wounded, saving Gus from that hybrid cult. I can't remember what they call themselves. Yeah, like, like the animal, animal people. people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like Gus has him on the horse and he's leading the horse down the road and you can see the sun going down. And yeah, the color there is yeah. fantastic. Can't fault it. Which that, that cult, the animal people, are a lot more fleshed out in the show than they are in the comic. They come back again in the comic and their leader is just this crazy dude who is the original father of those dog boys I was telling you about. <laughs> um, he's just this crazy guy. And Jeopard like, teams up with them to fight Abbott, and then they all get wiped out, <laughs> basically. But uh, in the show, they're like teenagers who, for some reason, have like a whole video game complex set up. <laughs> that was really fucking weird to me. I wasn't big on that, but whatever. But Becky is like their leader. Yeah. And in the comics, Becky's a completely different character. Oh, indeed. She's just like the <laughs> well, like a teenage prostitute that that Jeopard stumbles upon who's wearing fake bunny ears. <laughs> and when, when, uh, when her pimp, like when Jeopard for Caesar, and her, he, I can't remember, he makes some comment to her pimp about the ears. And he's like, hey man, times are changing, tastes are changing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's like, Ew. yeah. And then, yeah, then Becky and, and Lucy, uh, I think, doesn't Lucy shoot the pimp? She does. Yeah. She no, shoots the pimp's wife. Oh. Like, Jeopard beats him to death with a butt of his shotgun. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and then he goes to kill the wife, and she's yeah. like, no, 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 allow me. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, that, that's definitely not in the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Becky's a profoundly different character. In fact, the whole time, like, most of the first season, they call her Bear. Right. And I was just like, who the fuck is this character? Like, it's weird that <laughs> this is new character, and then when she finally reveals that it's Becky, like, oh, okay, that's a nice remix. Which is funny to me, because that's how my mind works. Like, the fact that they call her Bear, I'm like, fuck this character. Meh. And they're like, oh, it's actually Becky. I'm like, well, then that's fine. <laughs> I accept yeah. that. Thank you. <laughs> you may now pass go. Yeah, exactly. I have no problem with this character on a philosophical level, but the fact that her name is slightly different than what I read in the comic irritates me to no end. Right, right. <laughs> And one thing I have to hand to the show, too, that, like, when YA novels got really popular, post-apocalypse YA novels, dystopian stuff after Hunger Games, 
Um, one thing that I dislike that they started to do more of, particularly in the movie adaptations of these books, is like uh, militarized children. Like yeah. to the point that, you know, these are just unfeeling little Autobots that kill and, you know, are, are charged with saving the world yeah. almost. Whereas they kind of start off that way in the series, but by the end, the more you hear Becky talk about herself, it, I think they do a subtle good job of showing you that, no, like these kids know nothing else. Yeah. They just grew up in this and, you know, they're, they're fucked up. Yeah. Poor things. Well, I feel like a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, post-apocalyptic dystopian YA there's like this weird fetishization of the strength and the dominance of youth yes and using that strength to uh, like overpower the ruling class and destroy them to make something better blah 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 I'm like dude people are dumb like the (laughs) dumb kids are as dumb as the dumb adults exactly they're all gonna be dumb together (laughs) that's not how it works (laughs) no you can have hope for the next generation to be better than the last, but realistically, I actually I read a, a comment from Mark Hamill the other day that this isn't a new comment of his, but um, I just stumbled upon it where he was talking about his mindset for playing Luke in the Last Jedi, and like Luke being this now broken man, and he's like he goes, you know, there's a lot of me in that. He goes because I remember being young in the seventies. And thinking, man, when my generation comes to power, there's going to be no war. There's going to be no racism. There's going to be no homophobia. Like, we are, we are the young, new generation that is going to lead this world into a brighter spot. He's like, look at us now. We're worse than we were then. He's like, so my generation unequivocally failed. And we were the saviors. We were going to be the leaders of a new world. And we failed so hard <laughs> that we have Trump in power. You know, like, that's how bad we failed. And so he said that, like, just that mindset was with him while playing Luke. And think, hearing him say that, like, fuck, that's, that's like, it's harsh to internalize that. But at the same time, I think that's kind of needed. Right. <laughs> like you right. can't always see yourself on being on the, the, the winning side or the right side. You have to realize when you've failed and when you've been wrong. That's a good point. That will end it. I, that rings harshly true. And I think that also it, it puts it in a point of this new dystopian, uh, I guess, teenage craze that I think is kind of dying down now. But the I think, unfortunately, maybe the reverse side of that is that the responsibility just keeps getting shifted to the next generation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not fair. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be. <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. But um, I, I appreciate that... Um, the writers of Sweet Tooth for the series didn't turn it into this, like you were saying, rah-rah, sis-boom-ba, um, we're here to make things right. Yeah, it's just survival. <laughs> and that, that's what the comic is, too. It's just trying to fucking survive. Um, but the show is a lot more positive about the idea of survival. In the comic, it's one of those, like, like yeah, they survive, but so fucking what? <laughs> look, at, look at their lives. Look at the world. Fucking hell. <laughs> And in this, there's still hope that their survival can lead to a, quote, life. Right. right. And there's more emphasis on, uh, to uh, that bond of family is wherever you make it. Yeah. Um, which, again, is, is hopeful, like you said. And also, um, they do a really good job of, of uh, you, I think you might have already said this, but forgive me, I have the memory of a goldfish. 
um, that parallel of what's going on right now in our society yeah. with the pandemic and how people process it or choose not to process it. Yeah, and that's interesting too, like seeing the scenes where everyone wears a mask, you know, like at the housing complex when somebody gets sick and everyone puts on their mask real quick. And how everyone has, like, that one woman's mask matches her shirt. And, like, you see that a lot in today's society of just people People have to wear masks, so you might as well be comfortable with it. Um, but the pilot to Sweet Tooth was actually filmed before COVID hit in, like, 2019. Which is weird. Yeah, so then when they filmed <laughs> the rest of the series, they kind of rejiggered that to fit. Because, like, there's signs about six-foot social distancing in the show and all that. It's funny to see that thinking that the show was actually put into production before any of that. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's kind of... Well, they did a good job of blending it seamlessly. Yeah, exactly. But you, you sounded like you were going to say something, and I was going to... I was just going to say we're almost to an hour, and I have more to say, so we should, should we do two episodes on Sweet Tooth? We could do that. All right, sounds good. Well, then we will be back next week to continue talking about Sweet Tooth, and I'm not going to tell you if it was a vertigo... Or ever to slow or ever to stop yet. <laughs> You're just going to have to come back. What do you think about that? Tune in next time. Yeah. So uh, anyway, end of the show time. Like and subscribe, obviously. Duh. <laughs> um, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. Vertigo Voices. Just fucking find us. It's not hard. Uh, <laughs> We're waiting. Email us at vertigovoices at gmail.com. And... Uh, that's about it. I follow, guess. Did you say follow us on Instagram? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I, I had some comments I was gonna read. I'll do that next time. I'll start with that. Okay. I had some comments on Twitter. Oh, excellent. Yeah, comment uh, on our podcast. Comment on our Twitter, and um, I don't know if you're particularly incendiary or thoughtful. We'll read you on the show. Yeah, or uh, just really boring. If you're the most boring <laughs> comment. Start like the boring comment contest. Right. Post a picture of your oatmeal. <laughs> no, no pictures. I just want to, <laughs> like, hello, good day. I woke up. <laughs> <laughs> I found my missing sock. All right. All right. Well, then we're done for now. <laughs> Goodbye. I'll see you later. Bye.